Last week we looked at the anointing of David in 1 Samuel 16, and we were highlighting the differences between what man focuses on, which is the outward appearance, and what God focuses on, which is the heart. Specifically, we considered how Saul and David were were very different men because of their internal disposition toward God. We also looked at what Israel's expectations were for their first king versus what God's expectation was and why Saul failed in his rule and reign and why David was anointed as successor. And finally, we considered that David, that David was only a type, a foreshadowing of the one to come, the person who actually truly embodied God's own heart, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today we're going to further look at why Saul was rejected and why David was anointed as his successor within the context of Philistia's warring activity against Israel and amidst Goliath's defiance of the Lord. Today's text is really a picture of what a heart looks like when it's governed by faith versus what a heart looks like when it's governed by fear and unbelief. So with this backdrop in mind, let us now turn back to Scripture and read the second portion of our text this morning. We'll look at verses 38 through 58. Hear again God's word. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. But David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they, plund they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, put, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here today, that you would give us your word. Lord, that you would speak to us. We thank you for your servant David and his faithfulness, but we thank you more so, Lord, for your faithfulness to him and how you are also faithful to us. Lord, help us to love and trust you. Help us to live life with no fear before your face. We pray, Lord, that these words would not just be heard, but we would be doers of your word as well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I think all of us love hearing about or reading or watching a story where the main character overcomes insurmountable odds, and at the end he victoriously triumphs. And I don't think it matters whether that character's triumph is over an enemy or a group of enemies, a difficult circumstance, or whether it's on behalf of themselves or a whole group of people. We love underdog and hero stories. I think that's just the way we're hardwired as people. And I'm, I'm the same way. Though a bit cheesy, I'm a big fan of the Rocky movies franchise, particularly the original one. That's, that's my favorite. If you're not familiar with this movie, then you should come from behind the rock you live under. But Rocky is played by Sylvester Stallone, and he begins as a down-and-out boxer who grew up in the slums of Philadelphia. As you know, Rocky doesn't have a penny to his name. He's lonely, and he works as a, a bookie's enforcer to make ends meet. And as a boxer, as the movies portray him, at least in the first one, he's out of shape. He's washed up, and he never really amounted to much because no one really took an interest in him. And the only people he ever fought were other poorly trained boxers. Pretty much during the whole movie, Rocky faces insurmountable challenges, whether it's hunger or hurt or hardship. Now the turning point in movie one begins when Rocky is randomly offered a shot at the heavyweight title of the world. And certainly if he wins this, he wins the purse of the match. And this match would change his life forever, right? Winning this. The only catch is that he has to fight the current heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. You know this from the movie, right? The problem is, is that Rocky is outmatched in every way. He's got no manager, no money, and pretty much no motivation. However, at some point in the movie, during the course of the movie, Rocky begins to believe in himself through the help of others. Though he doesn't beat Apollo, at least a not till movie two, sorry for the spoiler if you haven't watched it, 
Rocky demonstrates what he, that he has what it takes to win, that he's got the heart of a champion, that he's got the eye of the tiger. Ultimately, he conquers his fear, turns his life around, and even gets a girlfriend, and he marries in movie number two. By the time we get to the fourth movie in the franchise, Rocky is wealthy, he's famous, he's even defeating other boxers like the Russian fighter Ivan Drago, who is enormously stronger and taller than, than uh, Rocky. And in this fourth installment, I don't know if you catch this from the boxing announcers, they actually portray this match in Russia as between a modern-day David and Goliath. Overall, this movie franchise, it's a great rags-to-riches story. It's the kind of story which is repeated time and time again in our culture, and we see it as a great moral tale. In fact, David and Goliath, one of the most well-known biblical stories in America, I would argue, is seen in this light. Every kid, whether you're a boy or a girl who's read this story or has heard this story, has pictured themselves as David facing and slaying the giant Goliath. We even get modern-day sayings from this story. We call young executives and businessmen giant killers. We even say that we need to face the Goliaths in our own lives. Symbolically, we picture Goliath as this imposing mountain in our pathway that's blocking our goals, or a bully at school that picks on us that we need to stand up to. And we take courage from David's courage that we too can confront these challenges just like he confronted Goliath. Within Christian circles, we spiritualize this story. We make the story about our own spiritual prowess to overcome our shortcomings, our failures, our sins. We see it as a story which illustrates how we can be like David and overcome the fallenness and evil of this world with just a little help from God. But unfortunately, my brothers and sisters, that's not what this story is about at all. It's not Rocky. Instead, it's about the glory majesty, power, and faithfulness of God demonstrated to his people for those who just have an ounce of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed. This story is another story about the great and mighty acts of God in history for his, for his people, and in this case, on behalf of David. You see, David is actually not the underdog in this story. It's actually Goliath of Gath. And ultimately, God is the hero of this and all the other redemptive biblical stories. It's not actually David, and it's not us. However, when we put ourselves at the center of the biblical story, at the center of our own personal story, then we wrongly focus on ourselves and our circumstances and not on the Lord and what he has done. And, what he has done. and when we do that, we open ourselves up to all manner of sin, including fear and unbelief. So if you find yourself wrestling with who is at the center of your story, your faith, your heart, then this sermon is for you. But what is our starting point, Jeff? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points for you this morning, three gospel truths that I want to communicate. And here's point number one. When we focus on our circumstances and not on the Lord, we respond with fear. But before we discuss Saul's fear, Goliath's challenge, and David's fight, we need to have a brief history and geography lesson to understand how we've arrived at this point in history and why this battle is taking place. Now, if you've spent any time reading your Bibles and looking at the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, you know that war between Israel and her neighbors, her neighboring enemies, is a reoccurring problem. 
you see, despite the great start that Joshua had and the second generation of Israel had when they came into the promised land, they failed to remove the Canaanites and all the other people groups that were there. They never finished the job. Some of these other groups included a people group named the Philistines. They were actually a non-Semitic people group from the Aegean world that settled on the coast of the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And within Israel, they established five major cities, Ashdon, Ashkelon, Gaza, and yes, the same Gaza that you hear about in the news today, Ekron and Gath. Now, some of these cities were located directly on the coast, but others were further inland. And they were bordering an area of Israel called the Shvela, which was comprised of foothills. And these foothills served as a geographical barrier for Israel against these five Philistine cities. Interestingly, Gath, Goliath's hometown, was the closest city of the Philistine cities to this border with Israel. And this area was important not only because it functioned as a border barrier, but because the major north-south and east-west trade routes converged in this area. So whoever controlled this area controlled commerce. So there was a lot at stake for Israel to protect this land. But what made controlling and defending this area hard for Israel was that the Philistines were a warring tribe. One of the things that made them formidable were their furnaces and metallurgical abilities, and thus by default their tools and weapons of war, which included the chariot, of which this time in history Israel did not have. The biblical text corroborates this in Judges chapter 14 and 15. It states this, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And then a little later, in 1 Samuel 13, it says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found among all the land of Israel, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their tools. All of this serves as the backdrop for what is at stake in our passage and why these two armies are encamped on the opposite sides of the Valley of Elah and have drawn up battle lines. But if this battle, if it wasn't enough just to have these two armies face one another, now we have later in our text the description of this one particular Philistine warrior. Now the narrator, he could have just said that Goliath was a big dude, that he's a big guy. But he kind of wants us to soak up the details of what's happening, of what's going on. So the camera, it telescopes. It goes from a wide-angle lens of these two armies that are encamped on the opposite sides of the valley, and then it moves and hones in to give you an extreme close-up of this giant on the front line. Height-wise, Goliath stood approximately nine feet tall, closer to nine and a half feet. And after doing some shekel-to-gram-to-pounds calculations, I can report that Goliath's bronze armor weighed approximately 121 pounds, and just the iron head of his spear alone weighed 14 and a half pounds. So Goliath of Gath was one huge, strong warrior, the kind of guy that would have a barbed-wired heart-shaped tattoo on his chest with mom in the middle, and he would still strike fear into the hearts of his enemies. But not only do we get a description of his impressive physique and weaponry, but the narrator also records Goliath's words. And man, is this guy really confident. Now, there are other examples within the ancient Near East of champions going out to fight on behalf of their king and kinsmen by challenging their enemy's own champion to single hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
So this is not a unique example. Saul should know what to do. And so it was expected that Saul should have responded in kind, either with appointing someone to fight or sending a volunteer. The problem is that everyone is dismayed and greatly afraid, as we read in verse 11, including Saul. And so goes this challenge with Goliath coming up to the battle lines for 40 straight days. Now, to be fair, after the historical picture that I painted and the narrator's description of Goliath, it's understandable why everyone was fearful. However, the passing of 40 days with no champion to face Goliath is embarrassing and shameful, especially for Saul. Because if anyone was qualified to take on Goliath and to represent Israel in battle, it would have been Saul. Remember, as we talked about last week, Saul was tall. He was head and shoulders above the rest of Israel. Saul was the king, and he only had one primary duty. That was to protect Israel and to lead the army in battle. Additionally, Israel was outmatched technologically. And do you know, it's probably likely King Saul was the only Israelite warrior on the battlefield that actually possessed the proper armor and weapons to face Goliath. But even beyond that, it was embarrassing and shameful because King Saul represented more than just himself, the army in Israel. As king, he represented Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. You see, within antiquity, all war was considered holy war. It was perceived as a competition between deities. So whichever, one, whichever side won the battle, it was ultimately because of their god. It kind of boils down to the belief that my god is bigger than stronger than your god, just as kids say about their dad. This is why the later dialogue between Goliath and David turns religious in nature. Now, considering all the ways that God delivered Israel up to this point in her history, you would think that the army would have just a smidge of confidence, but they don't. And you would think Saul would want to silence Goliath's accusations and meet him on the battlefield, but he doesn't. And why is that? Because Saul, as king and leader of Israel, is not walking with God. He's not focused on God. He has forgotten about God's glory, majesty, and power, faithfulness, and he himself is spiritually wayward. Beloved, I know that I am most fearful when I am focused on my own personal circumstances and not focused on God. And I imagine that's the same for you. It's easy to get caught up in the problems of life and to forget and minimize who God is, what he's already done, and what he promises to do especially when our problems feel insurmountable. But it's actually in those places of impossibility when God shows up, when God shows himself faithful, when God reminds us that he is God and we are not to be afraid, but we are to trust in him. That's the reality that Job had to come to terms with when he lost his own health, family, and livelihood. I know that many of you carry Tremendous burdens, tremendous heartache. Burdens and heartache of betrayal by a spouse, your own health, you're grieving for the loss of loved ones, you're lonely, you have unfulfilled dreams, you've been attacked in your character, you may have wayward children, you even have doubts 
about your own faith. The question is, will you ask him to give you the faith you need to trust and obey him? Will you ask him to show his faithfulness to you in the midst of your circumstances? Will you ask God to fight for you on your behalf? Or will you turn away or try to fix it yourself or ignore the problem or pass it on to someone else or just succumb to it? If you choose the former, then by faith you're acknowledging your need for God, showing humility, relinquishing control, and resting in the promises that God gives to you. You are asking God to be God over your life. If you choose the latter, then you open yourself up for further dismay, fear, and inactivity, as well as unbelief, which is unfortunately the road that Saul and the army took, which leads us to our second point. When we focus on our circumstances and not on the Lord, we respond with unbelief. Look again at verses 24 through 30. It's kind of a summarized version because the text is so long. But it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? And David said, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now up to this point, David has actually only been in the background of this story. But here in that passage, we actually hear him speak for the first time in Scripture ever. He doesn't speak in chapter 16. And so what are his recorded words? What does he say? The first words that come from his lips? Well, they're words defending the honor and name of God and questioning Goliath's legitimacy. Interestingly, though, in this dialogue, we also hear his brother, his oldest brother, Eliab, speak. And for the first time as well, he didn't speak in chapter 16. But instead of agreeing that God is the living God, the Lord of hosts, Eliab gets angry and challenges David's words. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First, if you remember, Eliab is the oldest son of Jesse, and he was just snubbed by Samuel to be the Lord's anointed and thus the future king of Israel. So I imagine he's probably a little upset, a little raw about the decision still, particularly in light of who was honored, his little brother David, the shepherd boy, who's there speaking now. Second, because David is a shepherd, he doesn't have any military credentials to talk so boldly. In fact, David isn't even old enough to serve. You have to be about 20 to be conscripted into the army, we think. So the fact that he's serving, he doesn't even be able to be drafted at this point. And so Eliab's anger makes, or it masks his jealousy of and his mocking toward and his disbelief in David. Eliab is judging David based on his outward appearance and abilities. But I think ultimately it boils down to this, my friends. I think Eliab's anger really stems from his unbelief in God. It stems from his unbelief that he doesn't think God knows what he's doing. Because to be fair, Eliab is right. David is not humanly qualified. David wasn't, but David wasn't chosen because he was humanly qualified, but because of who God is and David's faith in him. And here's the catch, right? Saul's waiting for volunteers to fight Goliath. 
right? If Eliab really wanted to prove that God got it wrong, then he could have volunteered to fight Goliath like David does later in the text. He could have come up to Saul and said, I'm your man, Saul, send me. He could have shown all of Israel that he had the heart of the king by facing Goliath, that he could have been the future king, but he didn't do it. But David did. This means God chose wisely. Remember, God looks at the heart. God looks at whether you have trust and faith in him, not in yourself and your own abilities. And so Eliab's anger, his fear, his dismay, it, it turns to unbelief, distrust of God and his goodness and his plans. Eliab is just another Saul, a man whose heart is focused on his circumstances and not on the Lord. And these similarities are only further heightened in David's conversation with Saul. And here's an abbreviated version of that in verses 33 through 37. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, I went after him. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, using the same reasoning as Eliab, Saul questions David's chances based on nothing else but his age. So again, the focus is on David's outward physical appearance and abilities juxtaposed against Goliath's own stature and experience. But again, notice how David responds. He doesn't say, yeah, King Saul, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. I'll go back and tend the sheep. No, David recounts God's glorious deliverance of the, in the face of apex predators, what he did for him when he faced these lions and bears. My friends, don't ever believe that God can't work within you, that he can't accomplish his purposes through you, that somehow you're not enough. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because the same God that delivered David from these man-eaters is the same God that delivered Israel from Egypt using the ten plagues that parted the Red Sea, the same gods that defeated the Amorite kings of Og and Bashan, and the same God who destroyed the mighty walls of Jericho. It's the same God later within Israel's history that delivered Jonah from the belly of the great fish, Hezekiah from the army of 200,000 Assyrians, Daniel from the lion's den, and his own son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. My friends, no matter what hardships befall you, no matter what trials you're enduring, this is what the Elijah, prophet, Elijah the prophet says. I want you to remember this. It's from 2 Kings 3. He says, This is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. My friends, if you are in the Lord, remember to focus on him Set your heart upon him, and he will deliver you from your fear. He will deliver you from your unbelief. He will be faithful to you, and he will supply the faith that you need to trust on him as he fights on your behalf. And this leads us to our third and final point. When we focus on the Lord in the face of our circumstances, we are given and able to respond with faith in Goliath. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him and cursed David by his gods. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will cut off your head, that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. My friends, Goliath didn't know it at the time, but he was so outmatched. He didn't even know it. David knew it, though. And David knew it because, unlike the fearful, unbelieving Saul and Eliab, as well as this uncircumcised Philistine, David focuses on the person of God and his mighty acts in history. And we know that because of how he concludes this statement, his dialogue. He says, for the battle is the Lord's. David is acknowledging that it is not him who is actually fighting Goliath, but that it is God himself that is fighting. Because God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own namesake. And there's little doubt who's going to win. Because the Lord whom Goliath ridiculed and cursed and the armies whom he defiled is actually a man of war, as Moses sang in Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And so David, like the rest of God's saints, rightly emphasized this central theme that's manifested through all of Scripture. And it's a theme that gives me hope, and I hope gives you hope as well. You see, God doesn't, he doesn't save by human strength. No, he saves with his strength manifested through his servant's weaknesses. Goliath comes with sword and spear and javelin, but before the day is out, every person in the valley of Elah will know that the Lord saved them using a sling stone by the means of a shepherd. The Lord provided the victory, but he gave it through weakness. Eliab tells David, you're a nuisance. Saul advises David, you're too young. Goliath mocks and says, you're a weakling. And because Saul's armor didn't fit him and was cumbersome, David was largely ill-equipped except for that which God already provided and trained David with, his sling. But ultimately, it, it doesn't matter what weapons of war David had. What matters is whether your heart and faith are focused on God and that God is with you. In fact, your inadequacy is exactly the qualification that you need to be the servant of God because only then will his strength shine most brightly through your weakness. And this is good news, my friends. David and Goliath, it's not a rags-to-riches story. It's not rocky. And it's not meant to be a secularized moral tale. No, this story is one of many biblical stories that highlight the lengths at which God will go to redeem his people and to display the glory and majesty of his own holy name. It is a story that is forward-looking, and it is a story that points to the greatest single hand-to-hand -hand combat event in all of eternity. Christ's defeat of sin, death, the grave, and Satan at the foot of the cross. And so, beloved, do not focus on your circumstances, which can lead you down the path of fear and unbelief but direct your focus toward the author and the perfect of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, then the promise is that not even the gates of hell can prevail against you. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us the faith and strength of your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ.
that you would live and radiate within us, that we can face our fears, face our circumstances, and know with deep conviction and commitment that you, Lord, are fighting the battle for us each day. Pray, Lord, that you give us the trust and hope and faith to walk in the ways that you walked. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.